Good evening, and welcome to the Ecology Hour. I'm Anna Halligan. Tonight, I want to play an interview that I recorded in 2020 with engineering geologist Tom Leroy. The focus of our conversation was on his experience working in salmon restoration on the Mendocino Coast. And I thought it would be a good show to share, given some recent news about the commercial salmon season this year. In early March, the Pacific Fisheries Management Council, which is the entity that manages sport and commercial salmon fishing, adopted proposals to close the 2023 commercial salmon season. So this means commercial salmon fishing will be closed in 2023, off of all of California's marine and inland waters, as well as off of most of the Oregon coast. And this is the third time in history that this has occurred, and it's the first time since 2009. The Chinook salmon population along the Pacific coast has dropped to its lowest point in 15 years. Um, and even though California has received a lot of rain and snow this winter, the current population of salmon in the ocean was born in 2020, and that was at the beginning of the state's ongoing and record-breaking drought and summer low-flow conditions. The decision is going to be finalized in the next month, and it was made due to the low numbers of adult and two-year-old jack salmon. And one of the arguments for why the these age classes of Chinook salmon are low is that there was a lack of water available to them in Central Valley rivers. So there are some arguments that the mismanagement of dams and flow releases are tied to the low salmon population. As far as salmon runs go in Mendocino County, um, the Chinook and Coho salmon runs are pretty much over. There were Chinook found in the Eel River, uh, also in the Noyo River, Big River, and the Garcia. Coho were present in a lot of the larger streams on the coast, including the Ten Mile, Pudding Creek, Big River, Noyo River, Albion River, Navarro River, and Garcia River. And steelhead trout are currently running, and their run could extend through April. So that is my somewhat grim update about salmon. Um, and now let's turn to my interview with Tom Leroy, where we talk about how salmon populations can be recovered. Tonight, I'm joined by Tom Leroy, an engineering geologist with Pacific Watershed Associates, a Humboldt-based environmental consulting firm. Tom, thanks for joining me. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Great. So I thought we might just start a little, um, well, I'll, I'll give a little background for the listeners. Uh, you and I have worked together quite a bit um, on restoration projects in Mendocino County. Um, so we have a longtime professional relationship, but I also consider you a good friend. Um, and I wanted to just maybe begin with um, having you tell everyone a little bit about who you are, uh, what you do, and where are you working these days? Okay. Well, um, like you said, I'm an engineering geologist um, at Pacific Watershed Associates. I've been there for almost 20 years, um, mainly working in the Humboldt and northern Mendocino areas, but I do venture out further uh, in my endeavors. Um, 
Lately, I've been focusing my efforts uh, quite a bit in the South Fork Eel River, which I just find a wonderful river, and um, it's just a good place to work. And so a lot of my work has been up in the uh, upper parts of the watershed in Indian Creek and Stanley and Bear Pen and Hollow Tree. You and I have some projects ongoing up in the Dutch Charlie watershed. So all those uh, tributaries into the South Fork Eel River are, um, you know, as, as much of a stronghold as you can have for um, a lot of our salmonid species. So um, I find those areas uh, interesting and, and fulfilling to work in. Yeah, you use that term stronghold, and, and we use that a lot when we are talking about salmon recovery, really kind of at a global scale, but also at a regional scale. Um, but some of our listeners may not know exactly what we mean when we say a stronghold. So do you want to, do, do you have a good interpretation of what that means? Or what do you mean when you, when you say a salmon stronghold? Yeah, well, I mean, this is a, uh, I'm a geologist pretending to be a biologist. So, um, but in my vision, a stronghold is, there's probably not any, any places in Northern California where the salmon are thriving and have robust populations. They've all been degraded and all of their um, historic range in, in the North Coast. But there are some locations where they've been less degraded or the population has at least been able to um, make some kind of comeback from uh, the various disturbances that the watersheds have been subjected to. So it's those areas where... Um, you know, right now we're finding the largest abundance of fish. And um, those are the areas that uh, a lot of people find uh, interesting and important to conduct restoration activities in because their philosophy is that you protect the good stuff first and then we can move over to the train wrecks and see if we can do something with those later on. <laughs> yeah, and, and and so I guess my kind of definition would be that, you know, strongholds like on a global scale are often considered to be in places like Russia or Alaska, where you still have uh, self-sustaining wild runs of salmon that are robust enough that you, you know, do see commercial fishing and um, recreational fishing. And, and, and so um, in California, a stronghold could mean something slightly different because our, you know, right now, I think California has somewhere in the range of up to 10% of the um, current runs make up 10% of the historical runs. And in California, there are some watersheds that are looked at as still having, you know, depressed, but uh, annual wild returns of salmon and steelhead. And, in, and we've talked about this quite a bit on the show about why Mendocino is particularly important in the context of salmon recovery, because so many of the watersheds, coastal tributaries here and the tributaries to South Fork Eel are some of those watersheds where you still have relatively stable um, populations of salmon and steelhead. And from a recovery standpoint, it is important to focus on those areas first um, because the habitat is 
still there. It's still intact. Um, but like you said, it may not be as, as compromised, I think you used the word train wreck, um, as compromised as, as uh, some of the other watersheds that have seen a lot of landscape disturbances in their time. So that kind of leads me to ask, um, I know that you probably more so than, than most people have, I mean, well, maybe in, in the likes of many of the foresters and people that work in the timber industry around here, you have personally like walked around in a lot of the, and driven around in a lot of historic and currently used timberland. And I'm wondering what are some of those um, kinds of landscape disturbances that you've witnessed in your work? Yeah, um, yeah, and you're right, I have. I've worked on literally all of the um, uh, largest industrial timber company properties in, in Northern California. And, um, you know, and, uh, as you know, most of those ownerships, you know, aren't the ownerships that were, um, there weren't the owners of the property when the initial heavy disturbances happened. But, um, boy, you know, it's just funny. There's, you know, you get a handful of disturbance activities that occurred in these watersheds. And it's just simply amazing how all the different, um, how those all combined in different ways to um, cause all the um, negative effects to the Selmarnid uh, populations in there. So essentially, first off the bat, you got road and skid trail construction. Um, you know, roads and skid trails were constructed all over almost all of these watersheds, and that was the historic, um, because the historic logging techniques, uh, that was just the way they do it. So everybody knows what a road is, you know, there's all these roads. A skid trail is essentially a bulldozer road that um, they used to drag logs with a bulldozer down the hillside to the roads where they would load them on logging trucks and then, um, you know, send them off to the mills. Um, and it was very common, if not, you know, ubiquitous back in the day, that the easiest way to skid these logs was downhill. You know, it cost, takes a lot of energy to skid them uphill. And the easiest way to do that was to just drive right down the stream channel. And so all these properties, not everywhere, but in a lot of places, um, were subjected to bulldozers dragging old growth logs down the stream corridors. And so the truck roads and those skids, the hillside skids and the skids in the, in the channel um, left a lot of debris and furrowed the landscape. Um, they changed the way that the rainfall that lands in the watershed. A lot of times it gets routed off the road system instead of soaking into the ground and recharging the water table. So the roads can have serious impacts on um, the surface water hydrology. In other words, just how the surface water flows through the watershed. Um, and uh, so all those things combined in the roads and the skids, they can really lead to some uh, issues, sediment and water resources. Secondly, the disturbances that we all know about is that they just cut too many trees too quickly. So they had, they, back then they did what was called even age management, which is essentially a clear cut. They just took, you know, the trees off the hillside 
And not only did that leave the hillside vulnerable to erosion, especially with all the new road and skid trail construction um, that was associated with that, um, but it, all the forests grew back with a lot of trees. And so, um, you know, maybe we had, I don't, I don't know the numbers because I'm not a forest, maybe we had 100 trees on an acre, you know, before logging. Now we've got 1,000. And so the forests are overstocked with really small trees um, that are really densely packed in there, which not only um, is bad economics for people if you want to be a timber harvester because lots of little trees choke out each other and make it harder for them to grow, um, but they also change the habitat for the wildlife. They increase forest fire um, potential, and so there's a lot of negative um, effects that were associated with just the way they logged back then. Um, and then I would say, you know, additionally, not lastly, because there's all kinds of things happen, is um, the riparian zone of most of these forests is, was heavily disturbed. So the riparian zone is the area of um, forest and shrubs that uh, makes up the margins of the rivers. Um, so it tends to have more wetland plants and um, sometimes a thicker canopy. Often it's composed of hardwoods as well as, uh, you know, the softer woods. And um, those riparian forests play a big role in the uh, aquatic habitat uh, associated with the stream system. And those... Uh, Riparian zones, because they grow bulldozers over them, um, sprang back in a different configuration than than they were originally. So, when you take all these those just those three disturbances, and you add them all up, um, the results are you've got overstocked forests, which are using a ton of water. Um, you've got stream channels that um, used to um, have complex stream and geomorphology features in them, flattened and bulldozed and, and um, made to be more, you know, sterile. And then all the increased runoff from the road and the clear cutting and all that stuff sent a whole bunch of water down the streams after you had nothing to slow that water down and turn it up. And it just, it reamed these stream channels out um, and took what, you know, little habitat was left after it got bulldozed and, um, and again, for lack of a better word, just kind of sterilized it. And luckily, cell mounteds are fairly resilient, especially the steelhead, and, you know, and they are able to work their way back up into these things and start working on it. But there's lots of action that people like you and I have been doing lately to try to undo to the extent possible the, the damage that occurred in those, those. Those are the three primary disturbance events, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. You really touched on some topics that we've covered in previous shows and hopefully the listeners aren't bored with the topic yet, but um, I mean, it's true. There's, there's this culmination of activities that resulted in several different types of changes to the ways that the forest, the ecology of the forest actually functions and the hydrology of the forest actually functions. And so I'm kind of curious, like, what led you down the road to restoration if you, if you um, were involved in that before you joined Pacific Watershed Associates or if that happened afterwards? Because they, 
that organization um, has a pretty unique kind of role in the kind of evolution of the way that rural and ranch roads are managed today. In fact, you know, uh, the principles of your firm, um, Danny Hagens and Bill Weaver, the authors of kind of the primary manual that is used and is in its established state standards for how rural and ranch roads should be managed. And so I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, like the history of how uh, PWA kind of, you know, wrote the book on how to manage our roads so that they do address drainages in a way that's more sustainable um, and how you got involved uh, with working with them on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, Danny Higgins and Bill Weaver, my bosses, are, you know, nothing but legendary in the um, world of forest and ranch roads. They started their uh, careers up at Redwood National Park um, in and really taught themselves along with the rest of the group up there um, how to uh, reverse engineer all these roads that were made um, back in the days of logging. Some of these roads were huge. We made with massive bulldozers. And so they, um, you know, at the time were, you know, had the funds to go out there and experiment and do some stuff. And they learned a lot. And um, after a while, I think they, you know, felt that it would have been uh, more fulfilling for them to, you know, work in the private sector uh, instead of in the public sphere. And so they started Pacific Watershed Associates as a, as a team. Um, and uh, they, you know, were quickly started finding jobs. They brought in Eileen Wepner, who's, you know, one of the most senior staff members um, to help them. And then uh, not long after that, uh, a few of us, other people came along and we've slowly just been chiseling away. But, um, you know, We've rewritten the handbook for forest and ranch roads twice now. Um, it's been interpreted into Spanish, and um, I can't remember if there's any other languages been uh, turned into. Um, Danny and Bill have, you know, not just worked on roads here in Northern California; they've worked on road systems all around the world. And just a few years ago, actually, was summoned to the World Court in The Hague to um, talk about a dispute on roads between the countries of Costa Rica and Nicaragua. So, um, you know, they're world famous as far as roads go. And um, they taught, you know, us, us, the second generation of roads people at PWA, um, all their tricks. And we have a really bunch of bright staff that took those tricks and made them better. And, you know, we really work good as a team together. And I think we've... Um, uh, are you know really got our chops done when it comes to these you know uh, native surface roads um, you know and the book is available I'm pretty sure you can get the forest and handbook uh, road for free uh, electronically on the internet yeah uh, folks can um, contact the Mendocino County RCD I think that they um, and they actually have been hosting some some field schools with your colleague Colin Hughes in the county over the last year or so. So look them up online if you're interested in Yeah, and, and if you and if you're a rural landowner, you should keep your eyes peeled for these workshops. Um, we've been conducting quite a few of them 
lately. Most recently, we just trained, I think, you know, 70 or 80 people from the state and state water resources control board and some of their other um, uh, regional boards too. Um, and then, like you said, uh, the Mendocino uh, RCD has had uh, some uh, similar ones uh, put on for more just, you know, kind of rural landowners. But, um, you know, getting out there and being exposed in the field to some of these things and not just kind of reading on a book or looking on a YouTube video, um, you can really get a lot from it and figure out how to perhaps how to manage your roads better um, because, um, you know, everybody thinks their road's in great shape, but uh, that's not always the case. I, I, it's, I've heard more than once somebody will say to me, our roads are in great shape. We grade them every year. Well, the problem with that is, and I usually say, well, if you have to grade your roads every year, they're probably not in great shape. If you only had to grade your roads once a decade, then your roads would be in great shape. So, um, you know, there's just a lot of little tricks and nuances you can bring to bear on um, these road systems to not only make them environmentally friendly, but, you know, keep in mind, an environmentally friendly road is almost always the cheapest road to maintain. So, you know, they do take a little bit of upfront cost because roads aren't cheap, but, um, you know, you do it once and you do it right and you'll be happy for a long time, you know, versus just constantly doing movements on your road every year. Um, you know, it's just uh, costly and time consuming and not fun. So, yeah. yeah. And so then, you know, once they, once we started doing the roads all over the place, we had a huge footprint in Northern California. I mean, you know, we, we worked everywhere. Um, then, uh, we just started seeing all these other opportunities to do environmental restoration as the community of environmental restorationists morphed and changed over the years and decades. Um, different, uh, restoration techniques have come in and out of vogue. And, um, so, you know, we've been sitting there watching that and the ones that seem to be, uh, um, best and, and, and within our wheelhouse, we have jumped on that, um, you know, including, uh, you know, creating in-stream habitat in the form of wood loading, uh, more recently engineering uh, projects for various types of habitat in the stream system. And, and, that's how, and that's kind of the way the whole world of restoration has worked. You know, everybody's learning as new t- tricks come on or new techniques are applied or new observations are made. Um, you know, the world of restoration is a, it's a young science. And so, um, you know, nobody ever gets it right all the time, but we do our best and we learn from our mistakes and we keep moving forward. I just wanted to say that PWA kind of mirrors what's happened in the restoration community over the last couple of decades. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to talk about that some, but before we, we do, I, I, I was curious, you used the term reverse engineer. I kind of want to go back to the basics again with restoration and and for a lot of folks, really salmon restoration really in its infancy, what really was, heavily focused on reducing sediment because it was recognized throughout California that sediment was one of the primary limiting factors to, you know, healthy populations of salmon was that there was too much sediment in in streams. And so there was a big um, 
pulse of activity that was really focused on addressing sediment in streams. And you used that term reverse engineering of roads. And that was, and still is, the primary way, uh, method, or treatment that we apply to reduce sediment from entering streams. So can, I know it's not the easiest thing to describe, but can you, can you just describe a little bit like what kinds of activities occur when you're reverse engineering a road? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I want to add a little bit on the sediment impacts too. Um, you know, one of the reasons that, that the people had gone, oh my gosh, all the sediment's coming off the roads. It was obvious to see all the gullies and washed out stream crossings, but it was all accumulating in the channels behind these enormous log jams that were from all the woody debris and logging debris that had been left in the channels um, from the historic logging disturbances. Um, and everybody went, oh, my God, all this, this, all this sediment that's in the stream channel, it's so bad. And um, it ends up, I think we've learned now, two decades later, that the, the issue is a little more nuanced. And, yeah, there is some places where there's too much sediment. Um, and there's places where we actually probably need sediment. Um, but also let's talk about just a little bit about the – there's coarse grain sediment like gravel, and then there's fine grain sediment like silts and sands. And the fine grain sediment actually is a lot worse nowadays, in my, in my opinion. The gravels can be bad sometimes, but usually the fish work within gravels. They like gravelly habitat. What they don't like is turbid streams that are chocolate brown um, that are depositing silts and um, you know, clays and maybe fine sands in the channel. That can be a little more – deleterious to um, the environment. But, okay, so back to the roads, though. So the sediment, a lot of the sediment is coming off the roads historically. So when we say reverse engineer, what we're talking about is if you could imagine, you know, a a hillside um, that doesn't have any roads on it and you're just looking at it from the side and it just is a, it's a hillside coming down at a 45-degree angle as you look across it there. Um, What they would do is you go in there with a bulldozer and you start cutting into the hillside. And as you're making that cut bigger and bigger into the hillside, you take the material that you've generated from that cut and you push it over the hillside downhill. And you just keep going down, cutting into the hill and keep going like that. So this is how you construct a road, right? You, the uphill side of the road gets cut and then that material is filled on the downhill side of the road. So typically, when a road is done being constructed, the uphill side of the road is actually cut into the hillside, and the downstream, the, de- the half of the road that's on the downstream side of the hillside is fill. And, um, and then when you did that, and then when you came to a stream crossing, you're like, hmm, what are we going to do here now? So back in the day, the easiest thing for them to do was they just threw logs in there. And so they would throw logs into the stream crossing and then put dirt on top of it and then get across the stream crossing and then start cutting the roads. And that, that technique was called a Humboldt crossing. Um, the problem with the Humboldt crossings are is that it doesn't take very long for the sediment that's being transported down that stream to jam up. And, and, and plug the logs that they used. Um, and then the sediment just starts to gather upstream of the road. And 
after several storms or several years, even sometimes after several decades, it can get up high enough. It can, the sediment can fill all the way up to the road and wash over the road and, um, you know, can result in either big gullies through the road system or other things. So what we do when we reverse engineer the roads is we go out there and along the road alignments where the road is was cut into the hillside, we take that material that they pushed over the side of the hill and we grab a portion of it, maybe not always all of it, but, you know, a bunch of it, and we pull it with an excavator and we pull it back up onto the road and push it up against the cut portion of the road to create um, a slope across the road as consistent with the natural hillside as we possibly can. So we go along the road and we do use excavators and bulldozers to, you know, put the hillside back and take the road out. When we get to the stream crossings, it's a slightly larger endeavor usually. We have to get in there. We have to dig all the fill out that was in the stream crossing. We have to dig out the stored sediment that accumulated upstream of it. And then we've got to dig out the Humboldt logs. Um, and then we keep going down. So that essentially is how you, re- you know, what reverse engineering is. It's essentially just using the exact opposite steps that they use to construct it. Try to put it back to the hillside as much as we can naturally and make sure all the streams you know, are in their water course. Now, it's not uncommon that we'll go out and look at a road that hasn't, and nobody's been on for 20 years, and the stream crossing is filled up with sediment, and the creek came up, but instead of going over the road and right back down into the creek again, it turns down the road, and then the creek is what does what we call being diverted. It diverts. So the creek starts running down the road instead of its original um, channel. And that usually can, that's where the real um, high sediment load issues with old roads comes in because this can put, you know, gullies, you know, down the road. It was just out on one last week that, you know, it was probably... 150 feet long and 10 feet deep and 12 feet wide. It took out the whole road. And where it turned off the road and went down the hillside, it, I mean, you can imagine what happens when you put a stream on a hillside. I mean, this is what they were doing with those big water cannons over in Weaverville when they were strip mining. It's like turning a whole giant river onto a hillside. It just blew out the whole hillside. And, um, and all that sediment, you know, went into the creek. And so... You know, a lot of what we do is going out there and try to fix the broken plumbing, you know, that's out there because we want to let the hillside and the rivers drain as naturally as possible um, because that's how we're going to um, start the process of uh, normalizing to the extent we can the conditions in, in, in the stream, you know. It's just mm-hmm. funny how something way up on the top of the slope or in the middle of a watershed like a road, you can tie that to, uh, you know, less productive fisheries in a stream. But, right. it, you know, it, it, it happens. Um, so, You know, you guys often will identify on these old roads to places where um, landslides have occurred. And landslides actually aren't that uncommon in the geology around here. So not to take us, get us off topic too much, but I'm wondering if you could just do a quick kind of 101 on 
what the kind of geology is like here in coastal Mendocino and, and why is that important? Why is it important to understand that for salmon restoration? Why are geo- why is the geology such an important component of the work that we do? Yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately the, the geology controls uh, a lot of the uh, um, processes that, shape our watersheds and, um, uh, and end up providing, uh, you know, habitat for fish, you know, um, we in, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, Fort Bragg North area and, and South too, um, the main underlying rock is, um, what's called the Franciscan formation. And the Franciscan formation is, um, like what would be, um, offshore, uh, deposits of, uh, muds and, and, and sands. Um, so like if you went out, say, I don't know, anywhere between like, you know, five and 15 miles off of Fort Bragg right now, that would be kind of the depositional environment I would suspect for some of the, you know, Franciscan formation. Um, um, and then because the San Andreas fault and other, um, you know, the active, uh, plate margins between North America and the Pacific plate, um, that air, that, you know, the rocks got uplifted and that area of seafloor is now, um, uh, uplifted. Now in the Fort Bragg area and a little bit south of there, overlapping the Franciscan formation are a series of Pleistocene marine terraces. So marine terraces are, uh, wave cut platforms from the ocean that, um, uh, are, the result of the, like, you know, the current phase of tectonic uplift that's occurring in the Fort Bragg area. Um, and as that uplift occurs over the last few million years, um, it has uplifted these marine terraces. So as an example, you know, probably below um, uh, 10 mile dunes right now, somewhere under there, there's probably a bedrock flat bedrock, what we call a strath under that. And someday that's going to be uplifted. And, you know, it'll probably, uh, you know, look like it'll be uplifted in, in another 150 or, you know, I mean, another million years or something like that, two million years. Maybe it will look like where the pygmy forest is down there because the pygmy forest that you're, most of your listeners assume are generally familiar with, that's on a marine terrace. So, um, and I think it's the nature of the marine terraces that, makes it pygmied. So the geology, those different geology types, they can drive how the streams look. Um, the Pleistocene marine terraces are much softer material. They're sandy. They can have gravels in them too and, um, you know, can erode fairly easily. The Franciscan has a mix of hard spots and softer spots, and it's completely shattered and fractured from, you know, millions of years of, uh, you know, tectonic deformation. So the Franciscan, um, because of its nature, and there's different bodies of it in Northern California that exhibit different properties, um, but um, in those different areas exhibit different um, control over the landscape. Um, for example, anybody that's driven up, you know, kind of 101 between uh, Leggett and um, Eureka, 
you kind of notice that on the when on the west side of the road, you know, you've got a lot of conifer forests, you know, and um, you know, mixed conifers and hardwoods. But on the east side of the road, um, you got a lot more big meadows and um, you know, some oak woodlands in some of those areas. And some of that's related to the climate, but some of it's related to the geology um, too. So all that, you know, adds to the underlying um, nature of the beast in here. Um, and because the rock is so fractured um, or incompetent in general, um, it, uh, it can be vulnerable to landsliding naturally let alone when you start driving bulldozers and cutting roads and, and doing other things that have destabilizing effects on the, on the hillside. Um, and once a landslide gets going, they're really, really hard to stop, especially the big ones. So, um, you know, it's, that's why it's important to, you know, make sure as you're developing your land, you're doing it in a smart way so that you don't cause landslides. And the easiest way for a landowner to cause a landslide is to discharge a lot of road runoff off their road and onto the hillside somewhere where it really wasn't, you know, intended to be. Um, right. But but well, I, will say, I want to say another thing oh, yeah, about geology. Uh, yeah. The um, another thing that I think is interesting about geology, though, up here is, and and this is just a uh, a working hypothesis here, um, is that I think a lot of the faulting that has occurred in the San Andreas fault zone. Um, cause the San Andreas fault zone in the, in the, in the Fort Bragg area and, and North of there is actually offshore. Um, but inland you've got the Ma'akama fault zone, which runs up through, you know, Healdsburg and Ukiah and, and Willits and those areas. And in between those two, there isn't a whole lot of faults mapped in there, but I suspect there are some, it's just that that wild country is so remote and, you know, so hard to, get around and the, and the fact that the, the, all that Franciscan formations really makes it hard to recognize faulting. Um, but I think there's faults in there too. And, and some of those faults have, um, in part related to the tectonics uh, up here, um, create conditions and little sweet spots where fish have really gravitate to. And some of these strongholds that we were talking about earlier, um, in particularly, I'm thinking about the Dutch Charlie watershed, and I'm thinking about the Anderson Creek watershed, which is a uh, tributary to Indian, which goes down to the South Fork Eel. Um, both of those have really disproportionately wide valleys and floodplains, um, and it, but that are disproportionate to the size of their watershed. Um, and that's probably because the watershed boundaries have changed from tectonics and stuff through time. But the results have been that they make this really low gradient stream habitat that has um, uh, adjacent riparian margins that are really promote fish health and, um, and, and fish growth. And so I just think it's interesting that um, you know, well, I think it would be interesting if I could prove it, that the, uh, that it's these geologic controls in some of these watersheds that are actually um, driving, the main driving force behind some of these strongholds that we're looking at. I just think that's mm-hmm. cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's cool. And the other thing that 
I have, I've been thinking about a lot and I know we've been talking about a lot lately at work is just, you know, how subsurface conditions dictate how and how much and when water is stored in the ground and then how that water then becomes surface water in our streams. And, and so, you know, thinking about like kind of the evolution of the science of restoration, which is still, we're always learning new approaches to this work. You know, we kind of started with roads and, and we, and we focused on wood in the stream, but that was the, the accumulation of lots of large woody debris that was kind of relic to relics of the historical logging industry. We've gone back to putting more wood in streams. We're still working on sediment reduction with roads, but we're, and a lot of our early work I feel like was really focused on, you know, creating and promoting healthy rearing habitat for fish in the summer. But we're realizing how important it is to also create rearing habitat for juvenile fish in the winter too. And so I'm curious, you know, what are the kinds of restoration that you think are the most important for us to be considering today and in this kind of Mendocino County geographic area? Yeah. Well, uh, uh, you know, again, I'm a geologist and not a biologist, but I work with biologists all the time. And, and the reality is if you want to be a good restorationist, you have to have a fairly decent grasp on kind of several scientific disciplines, I think, to really try to be as, as effective as you can. And it's just funny how... I see in, in our world and our friends that we, you know, hang out with all these people that are like engineers or um, hydrologists, and they all know so much about fish. It's cool, um, you know. And so, bio geophyso. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's just cool. And so, um, but you know, what the, the answer is, you know, what the real answer is, is that every watershed is unique, and they each have their own limiting factors that are going to probably be the biggest driving factors for fisheries recovery. And I'm sure you've talked about this in the past, you know, on some of your other shows, but just to remind everybody that's listening, you know, the, the size of a juvenile salmon or steelhead when it leaves the river system and goes out into the ocean is directly proportional to the likelihood that it's going to make it back again. If a fish is big and healthy and robust when it hits the ocean, it has a way better chance of surviving. But if it's tiny and meek when it hits the ocean, it's going to get picked off in the first hundred feet by something because the ocean is a horribly ruthless place for a you know tiny fish. And so um, the key, a lot of people believe the key, and I think there's something to be said to this, um, to recovering fisheries is to try to grow as many big fish as you can, you know, um, but it's not just as many, as many, you got to grow big ones too. Um, so like you said, different, the different species have different, um, life cycles and habitats. And so, um, you know, where it's like, uh, for example, the Chinook salmon or the King salmon, they'll come up, they'll spawn, the babies come out of their eggs and they relatively quickly head right back downstream again. And they kind of like to grow up in the estuaries. Um, the coho salmon, 
will go up and lay eggs and the babies will come out and they'll sit in the watershed for a year. Um, and the steelhead will go up and have babies and they'll come out and some might leave and some might stay and some might go upstream and some might go downstream and some of the adults may stay and some of the adults may go back down and the steelhead is, have a super diverse you know, life strategies. So depending on what species you have in your basin and what you're targeting is going to drive what your what actions you want to take in there um, to uh, promote recovery. Um, for a long time, as you and I are well aware, uh, the coho salmon were a big deal because a lot of our North Coast rivers were going dry or getting heavy use of water. And the coho salmon, because of the fact that they had to be up there in the in the upper watersheds for the whole year, along with the fact that they're kind of wimpy um, salmon, uh, they don't handle, you know, well, they certainly don't handle no water, and they uh, they don't like the warm, you know, low flows either. You've got to have water and space for them to make it through the summer. Um, additionally, because the coho salmon are up there through the winter as juveniles, they've got to find places to escape the velocity of the raging main stem rivers that they're occupying. And so, um, you know, a lot of the restoration work that I've been doing and, and you and I have been collaborating on for years now is um, adding wood into the creeks in areas where it needs it to try to provide areas of shelter and cover and velocity refuge for the fish, um, the juvenile fish, so that they can... Um, you know, have a place to hunker down through the winter. But additionally, and probably arguably more importantly, um, is connecting some of these things that they would call like high flow or off-channel habitats, like allowing this, the river water to get up onto the floodplains or occupy old abandoned river meanders. Um, it's those little things that they call off-channel habitat that are infrequently inundated by the river, or maybe they're inundated annually, but they're certain they, they may, may not be wet all year round. Some may, some may not. Um, those habitats um, are, I think, critical uh, to um, making sure the coho salmon uh, population can stay robust. And um, you know, we all know that most of our floodplains have been, you know, diked off for agriculture or other reasons like that. So, um, but those really were the, um, those floodplains and high flow channels during the uh, winter flows are like the coho buffet. Um, you know, if there's, you know, imagine where would you rather be swimming as hard as you can upstream in dirty, cloudy water or kicking back on a, um, you know, a way lower velocity. River. <laughs> yeah, on the side where all these bugs have been inundated and are floating up and practically going into your mouth so you can sit there and just like a couch potato and just get fat. And that's what we need the fish to do to live when they, when they get out. So in my mind, that's where I think a lot of our, our opportunities are in, you know, some of these upper watersheds. In the bigger watersheds, you know, connecting the floodplains is still a big deal. But also, you know, you look at the Eel River or the South Fork Eel River, it still doesn't have the big deep pools that it had after the 1964 flood because all the sediment that washed off the hillsides just literally filled in, you know, the, the river there. 
And, um, you know, but I, I would imagine that back in the day, there was forested islands on there and, you know, giant log jams and, and other, you know, complexities that, that made a real diverse mosaic of potential habitats so that the fish that were in those systems could pick and choose from all the different stuff that was available to them, you know, rather than just, uh, well, I can hide behind this one rock and hope a pike minnow doesn't eat me, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, I think the off-channel and, and the high-flow channel habitats are super important, but, again, it's all important, and the, cool, the most important thing is you do some kind of study and you just try to go out there and do the best you can to characterize the disturbances and the effects of them in your watershed and then try to prioritize what actions you can do that are going to get you the biggest of buck for the least amount of money because the, there is just limited amount of money available to do environmental restoration. So we as restorationists and the regulators that you know manage the grants that occur from these kind of things, really we need to do our best to um, vet our projects out and make sure that we're putting our money in the places where it's going to have the biggest effect. Um, and then once we've taken care of those places, then we can chisel away at some of the other, the other things. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly your approach to restoration, your work has probably changed a lot over time. I'm curious, you know, what do you consider now that you didn't, previously when you, you know, are working in a watershed and trying to determine what kinds of restoration techniques to employ? Yeah. I mean, you know what? I'm, I'm clearly not done learning and everybody has so much to learn on this stuff. And it seems like every couple of years I have some kind of epiphany and, you know, I just go, Oh my God, how come I've, I've been doing this wrong the whole time and I could have been doing this or I could have been doing that. But, um, you know, I, I'm really just learning to beef up my interdisciplinary, you know, chops is really, I think, what has helped me a lot, you know. I mean, I'm a geologist, so I'm always thinking about dirt and rocks and and rivers, but rivers are not just water flowing through, uh, you know, V-shaped crack in the ground, you know, the ecosystems that evolve around that are are dependent on the trees and the water temperature and the food availability and the amount of sunshine that gets in there and the you know all these other things and so you know God now I find myself cruising around with thermometer and taking stream temperatures everywhere I go and I'll bring an increment bore to to figure out the age of the forests that are growing on the um, you know floodplains I look a lot at the how the sediment is being stored and routed through the channel system um, and how the, how all of that is um, related or in part controlled by how the wood um, that's in the rivers. And I try to, you know, imagine like, okay, what did this forest look like originally? And, you know, and how can I, Um, Because it's not just about, like, the condition it's in. It's about the processes that are occurring is where the real recovery comes in. Because we can all go to a stream and we can go, wow, this looks nice. The water's crystal clear and I see a few fish. You know, it might look nice, but, like, for example, in the wood loading, as you and I know, 
Um, back in the day when these were big, you know, conifer, fir, and redwood forests and the trees fell over in the creek, man, that old redwood would sit in that creek for a thousand years, you know, as a big piece of wood, slowing the water down, they'd hit it, sorting the sediment, you know, and, and that happened over the length of the stream and that happened. But after we drove the bulldozers and took all that stuff out, and left nothing in there and wiped out the riparian zones. Now what we have are mostly large alders in these riparian zones. And those alders just don't provide the same function that an old growth redwood did when it falls in the stream. They're not as durable. They don't have the longevity in the stream. And um, so, you know, it's that process. How can we accelerate the process of succession in the riparian forest, right? So for your listeners, you know, this is a forester term, I think, you know, succession is the process by which, like if a forest fire comes through and burns down the forest, the first thing to come back is the hardwoods. They all come back really quickly. Um, the, the conifers, like the firs and the redwoods will sprout, but the conifers will dominate. But over years and years, decades and decades, eventually the conifers will win the long race, right? And, and out-compete because they can grow taller than the hardwoods do. And so the hardwoods, the, the softwoods, the conifers and redwood uh, conifers, they succeed the hardwoods. So it's a succession. So a lot of times what we try to consider is maybe we should be trying to figure out how to accelerate the process of succession in the riparian zone so that we can grow the big conifers that are going to naturally provide the wood. So that, you know, so that, cause the best thing I could do in the wood loading market is to put myself out of a job. I would love nothing better. Um, but to do it, you've got to fix the broken process, not just put band-aids all over it. And so I think that would be the one thing that I've learned and is most important. And I would encourage landowners and other restorationists too, is don't get hung up on the condition something's in. Although that's important, you've got to think about the natural processes that were occurring and how your actions can create conditions that will facilitate these natural processes to take over so that you don't have to do anything there anymore. So that's what I'm interested in. And it's super complex, but makes your brain race around like a bottle rocket with no stick on it. But, uh, um, you know, I think trying to understand that and the more you can understand that, the more you can focus your restoration projects in, in that way, I think you're going to do a, a better job. Yeah. Well, we're, we're coming towards the end of our hour and I'll kind of end our interview with one final question. It's kind of a big one, but you'll have to give me a brief answer. Um, what do you think, even in the face of climate change, do you think recovery of salmon is possible? Um, in California, you know, I I think that if you mean recovery, hitting the targets that, um, like to actually make the populations more and robust and self-sustaining to the the point where we can all just start opening commercial fisheries and, you know, fishing all the time. I don't know, man. I think the outlook is bleak, um, you know, but I'm not an expert on that either. So, you know, you just got to take what I have for a grain of salt, but I do think that we can preserve the species. 
at a level where they can sustain themselves. You know, the, the, the real trick to getting the fish to hang on here is to make sure that their um, population levels don't get so low that the fish that come back start to become inbred. What's that called again? You, 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 I know you know the name of that decompensation level. Or I can't remember what it's mm-hmm. called, but, you yeah. know, uh, that's what we got to be careful we don't hit. I think it's totally feasible that we can, you know, keep the populations viable and genetically diverse and robust. But, man, it's going to be hard, you know. I mean, if the area is warming and the when we're getting the rainfall, the timing of that may, you know, be changing. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure, especially given all the other strains on the fish from population encroachment or water use in the watersheds, you know, it's going to take a real concerted effort and a heck of a lot more money being put into the, uh, um, process than, than is right now. Uh, the good news is, is that restoration jobs are a real thing. You know, um, and I feel so blessed, you know, that I've been able to raise my family and, and make a living wage protecting salmon and, you know, uh, and the environment. And uh, I know a lot of other people that are colleagues of ours that feel the same way. And so, um, you know, it isn't going to be the backbone of our economy like fishing or logging was back in the day. But it's going to be a part of it, I see, going into the future. And I think it's an investment that's uh, worth it. Well, that concludes my interview with Tom Leroy, engineering geologist with Humboldt-based consulting firm Pacific Watershed Associates. I'm Anna Halligan, and thank you for tuning in to the Ecology Hour. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.